Oops. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Resurrection City Church. My name is Joel. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, thankful to have you with us this Sunday morning, um, whether you're here in person, maybe you're online. Uh, it does sound like we're already in, um, in sick season, and so maybe some of, you, some of you are at home sick. Hope you're feeling, feeling good, uh, but you're decided to join us online this morning. Whatever it is, just glad to have you with us this morning um, on this beautiful Sunday. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to get into our message today. Lord, thank you for, as always, this opportunity to gather together as your people um, to worship, to um, experience each other's fellowship and the love uh, that we have for each other, Lord, um, to uh, take time to contemplate and, and meditate on your word, um, to take communion, um, all of the things that we do on this Sunday morning, Lord. I just pray that you'd bless it all, Lord, um, in Jesus' name, amen. So we are in a series throughout this fall on the parables. Um, we're calling it Jesus' Stories, Understanding the Kingdom. Um, and these are these provocative stories that Jesus uses throughout his ministry to help him accomplish his mission. We've kind of uh, explained uh, why, uh, why he does this and what they are kind of for the last few weeks. Um, sometimes it's to challenge us, to elicit some sort of response from us. Last week was a really good example of a, a parable like that. Um, sometimes the parables explain what the kingdom of God looks like, and that's a little bit of what today's parable that we're going to be spending some time studying is like. Now, what I want to do to kind of start the, the, the message off today is do a little exercise in historical imagination. Um, it can be really helpful for us, I think, when we read our Bibles to try to put ourselves into the sandals of the people who would have originally heard it. Take our shoes off for a second and try to think about what it would have been like for them to hear uh, maybe this parable or to read the scripture or to live through it. Because what it does is it helps us to understand, especially in the case of a parable like this, what question is being responded to here, right? What is going on in the life of someone that Jesus would say, use this parable to speak to them. I think that actually is a really important um, tool and exercise for us to grasp the meaning well of uh, parables and really scripture in general. All right, so I want you to imagine you live in uh, the first century Palestine. You're part of a Jewish farming family. You live in a lake region in the north of Judea uh, in, a town, in a region called Galilee in a town called Capernaum. All right, and you're just kind of an average Joe as much as you possibly can, right? It means you make a modest living. You sort of squeak by amid all the normal troubles that are around in the world. And mostly everyone else you know is as poor as you, except for a couple of really wealthy landowners. And most of the people you know, you're in tons of debt. It's just a sort of a daily burden you deal with. Um, you also deal with raiders who steal from you, with tax collectors who come around every once in a while uh, to collect the Roman tax, but you know they overcharge you, you know they're skimming off the top, you know they're taking more than they need, and occasionally Roman soldiers will come by and harass uh, you all to remind you that they're in charge, right? On top of all just the regular sort of crumminess of the world. This is just sort of the world that you live in. Now one day, a man shows up in your village, and you've heard some buzz and excitement about him um, previously, and he's got a whole entourage and a bunch of excitement following him. Now, he's a rabbi. He's an itinerant teacher, 
And some people think he might be more than that, maybe a prophet, um, maybe even more than that, like a sort of Messiah figure. These are all just rumors. This is all just kind of buzz. Nothing is concrete about any of it. And his name is Jesus. He's the son of Joseph, and he's from a few towns over, a town called Nazareth. So you, so you're skeptical of this, but you figure you'll see what all the, the, the buzz is about and, and kind of gather along with the rest of your village to hear what he has to say. And um, you, you, you listen as he starts to teach. He talks about how God is moving in a way that you and all your family and friends have been waiting for all their lives. And in fact, your ancestors have been waiting for centuries for God to do something like this. He says God is in the process of bringing his kingdom something you've heard other rabbis talk about uh, that God wants to do. And he says it's happening through his ministry specifically. And there's a sort of gravity and presence to him, a kind of strange warming of your heart as you listen to his message, a kind of charisma that he has accompanying him that no other prophet or Messiah figure that you've ever experienced, and you've experienced a few in your life, has ever had. And eventually some ambitious people in your village, uh, they're so ambitious they decide to lower a friend of theirs who's paralyzed in the middle of a room that Jesus is teaching in front of him and see if he'll, he can do something to help their friend. And to your surprise, he tells the guy to get up and walk, and he does. And then someone brings uh, their dead child to him, and he brings them back to life, right? And you are just speechless at this point. This is beyond anything you could have expected. Your heart really, it's not just surprise, it's joy. It's a sort of deep joy and excitement that you have never felt before. Your heart burns with it because maybe this guy is actually telling the truth. Maybe you're experiencing something no one else in history has experienced up to this point. And the man stays for a few more days. He does some teaching. He challenges everyone to think of God in ways you never have. He, he heals some more people. He teaches you how to pray like he does. He encourages you to think of God uh, not just as a king uh, far off, but as your father, someone who wants you to draw near uh, to him. And he leaves eventually, saying that he needs to go to other villages and tell them the same good news. And as he leaves, you realize you've never been so excited in your life. You truly believe it's finally time that God's kingdom is coming, which you've always believed means wronging or righting the wrongs of the world, making the bad things right again. And the world is never going to be the same. You truly believe this with all your heart. But a few months go by and you don't hear about anything else happening and, and you assume the kingdom is coming, but the more and more time goes on, the less and less it really feels like it. And you keep praying like he said to do, trying to live according to his teachings. But then one day that tax collector comes back and he's raised the tax rate again. And you're not sure if you can pay it next time. You can squeak by this time, but the next time he comes around, you're really not sure if you're going to be able to pay the rate that he's asking you. Why didn't the kingdom change anything about that? This is unjust. Why didn't God do something about it? Shouldn't the kingdom have changed that situation? Right? And then a week later, the Roman soldiers come back again. And this time, uh, they go further than they've ever gone. They beat a man half to death just for fun. Again, why didn't the kingdom that Jesus promised was coming change any of this? Why does everything feel as crummy as it did before? What happened to the world being changed forever? Well, I think that's what today's parable is all about. It's a response to this question. How can the kingdom of God be present when there's still so much wrong with the world? 
right? We can imagine people like this, you know, fictional Jewish farmer would ask these kinds of questions. As Jesus would come into their village, he would kind of uh, exercise his ministry, all the different things that we just talked about, and then leave, and things wouldn't necessarily feel that different. You can imagine this type of question cropping up. And when people would ask Jesus this, he would say, well, let me tell you a little story. I think that's how this parable is supposed to work. Now, I think the reason that we want to talk about this parable in this series is because we ask this question a lot of times too, right? I don't know about you, but a lot of times it's just like, man, why? Like, why does everything suck so badly? Why does it feel like nothing has changed? We believe the things that we do, but we leave here on a Sunday morning a lot of times and things just don't feel often like uh, the world has been changed in the way that we believe. That's a real question I think we deal with. And this parable is Jesus's response to that. Another way we ask the question sometimes is called the problem of evil, right? Maybe you've heard that term before. I think this is Jesus's response to questions like that. Now, what I want to do today is I want to walk through the parable and we'll kind of explain it. And I've got a few kind of reflections and meditations on it. But actually, I, I'll be honest, as I was writing this sermon all week, I wasn't totally sure what types of applications to make or things to talk about that would really kind of meet people exactly where they're at. There's a lot of ways you could go with this parable, I think, as you'll see. And so how about this? We're doing a question response throughout this sermon series. Um, what we're doing is, you know, giving you a chance to uh, ask some questions and the preacher will try to respond to them. Okay? That's something we usually do a couple of questions maybe at the end of the message. But today, I would actually really like it if you could send me a bunch of questions and we can actually let that take up uh, the bulk of the sermon after I'm done kind of walking through it very briefly. We can make it be a little bit of like a choose-your-own-sermon adventure, right? Do you guys ever do those choose-your-own-adventure stories as kids? Does any, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, cool. Are those still like things like kids do nowadays? Okay, great. All right, well, we're going to do a little choose-your-own-adventure as much as you guys want to uh, engage, okay? We'll try to get to a bu- bunch of questions. Still no guarantee we'll get to every single one, but please, if you have any sort of question or thought about, like, what would it mean for this, or what does this look like, according, you know, according to the parable, send it in. We'll try to get to it, and we'll try to let a lot of the sermon be, um, just be kind of conversational, dialogue-driven between uh, you and me. How's that sound? Does that sound good? Awesome. All right, so let me start by first walking through the parable, reading it, offering a few kind of points of context, and then, like I said, when we get to Jesus' interpretation, I'll offer a few um, thoughts and meditations of my own, but then we will kind of really hop into what you guys want to talk about. All right, so let's do it. Oh, yes, forgive me, sorry. Um, you can go to our website, rescitychurch.org, um, to submit questions. Um, just go ahead and pull it up on your phone. Um, it should be right up there on the front. Go ahead and submit it, and then they'll get sent to Julie, and she'll be able to kind of uh, sift through those and, 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 and ask them once we get to the very end. All right, thanks for reminding me about that. All right, let's get into the parable. Uh, it comes from Matthew 13, verses 24 to 30, and then uh, jumping ahead to verses 36 to 43, which we'll do in just a second. Here is another story Jesus told. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. But that night as the worker slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat, then slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. The farmer's workers went to him and said, Sir, the field where you planted that good seed is full of weeds. Where did they come from? An enemy did this, he replied. Should we pull out the weeds, they asked. No, he replied, you'll uproot the wheat if you do. 
Let both grow together until the harvest. Then I will let the harvest or then I will tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, tie them into bundles, and burn them, and to put the wheat in the barn. All right, so let's kind of talk a little bit about the context here. Um, uh, this story is easy enough to follow, I think, when you understand the key component, which is the weeds. All right, so the weeds here are not just, it's not just any old weeds. It's not like there are dandelions in the field or something like that, all right? It's a very specific type of weed that was common, that is common, especially into that part of the world. And they're called, the scientific name is Lolium uh, temulentum. All right, but it's often called darnel or false wheat. It's a name that people use, and you hear the, the nickname false wheat, and you start to maybe understand why this would be a problem in the parable. Um, what, it, what this, this weed looks like is it looks very much like wheat, especially before maturity, and it can carry a poisonous fungus in it. So if it's harvested and ground together with the wheat, all of the flour that you're producing gets spoiled by it. And it looks so much like wheat that even experienced farmers can't always tell the difference, especially early on. And all you can really do is wait until it all grows, and when you can tell the difference between them a little bit better, and pick them apart when the harvest time comes. Now, in terms of an enemy coming to sabotage someone's field, this was not necessarily an everyday occurrence, but we do have examples of stuff like this also happening in the ancient world, where someone would be mad at their neighbor and they would go sabotage their field. This is people's livelihood, right? This is the kind of thing where if you really wanted to screw with somebody, this would be a good way to do it, because this is how they feed themselves and make their money, is through their field. So it's actually kind of a really awful thing to do to somebody, and it's a, a very appropriate to call someone who would do it your enemy, all right? Now, people hear this parable by Jesus, and they're confused. You probably are, too. How does this answer my question, Jesus, about um, how so much can be wrong with the world if the kingdom is supposedly growing? And so, Jesus gives them one. And actually, Jesus often doesn't give um, explanations of his parables. This is actually one of only three that gets a pretty detailed explanation by Jesus. But he actually um, says quite a bit. It's actually very helpful. So let me read that. You can actually, we're going to skip a, a couple of verses here and go to uh, verse 36 where Jesus does that. Then, leaving the crowds outside, Jesus went into the house. His disciples said, please explain to us the story of the weeds in the field. Jesus replied, the son of man is the farmer who plants the good seed. The field is the world, and the good seed represents the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people who belong to the evil one. The enemy who planted the weeds among the wheat is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the harvesters are the angels. Just as the weeds are sorted out and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the world. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will remove from his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And the angels will throw them into the fiery furnace, where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. All right, so a couple things here. First of all, the field. Sometimes when you hear this parable interpreted, people will talk about the field being the church. It's actually a very common interpretation in church history. And so they think this is referring to kind of the mixed nature of the church, right? You have a mixture of wheat and weeds within the church. Jesus actually is very clear in verse 38 that this is the, the world. And so he's talking about the kingdom being present, growing in the world, sort of amidst everything else that's going on in it. And the coming of the kingdom, I think what's very clear about this parable is that the coming of the kingdom is not a signal for an immediate replacement of the evil in the world that we live in now. 
Instead, Jesus is saying the world is far more complex than that. We live in a much more complex world where our normal questions sometimes of, you know, why did this bad thing happen? Why didn't God just do something about it? Snap his fingers and make it not happen. Jesus is saying the world doesn't quite work like that. I think you need to understand the world as being a little more complex than this. And I think stories like the, the, the story of Job, which we can maybe get into in some of the Q&R if you want to talk more about that, I think actually are a good example of what this might look like. Now, this doesn't mean that God won't or hasn't done anything. It's just that he will do what we sometimes hope he would do now in the future, at the right time. He will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And that's the moment where we look forward to and hope that God will make things right. He will do justice, right? The thing that we so badly long for and so many people cry out for today in our world. However, though, this is not the right time to do it, at least not in full. And that leaves us in a bit of an uncomfortable middle time where we have to ask hard questions like, you know, why does this bad thing happen? Why, if the kingdom is growing, we believe as God is working in the world, why do we still experience the things that we often do? Now, when you reflect on it, I think one of the main issues um, is that the difference between wheat and the weeds is that it's incredibly hard to spot, right? In the parable, the workers assume that, you know, like people often do, that they know enough to solve the problem on their own. Right? Let's create some purity tests to find out who the weeds are and let's get rid of them ourselves. Okay? Let's do it right now. They don't want to wait. They feel like if they wait, then all will be lost. That's the fear, I think, behind that. And so they judge one another. They cancel each other. Right? We know what this looks like. Right? This is something we experience a lot of times in our own day here. It's really a very normal human thing. If you look throughout history, we just do this to each other all the time. We think we can tell who are the good people and who are the bad people. And we should deal with the bad people. Get rid of them. Find some way to deal with them. But in the parable, the farmer knows things aren't so simple. Okay? We don't always know the difference between wheat and weeds, even if we pretend that we do. Think about it. A regular feature of Jesus' ministry is to come and say, the people that you think are righteous and the people that you think are sinners, you've misunderstood. This is a common thing that Jesus does. He comes to rearrange people's understanding of who is righteous and who is a sinner or who God would reach out to and seek after. He spends time with people that absolutely would have been thought of as weeds in his own society by the religious, the righteous of their day. But Jesus sees them because of their repentance and their willingness to follow him as wheat. And he often says things to people like the Pharisees, the ones who are seen as the righteous, the wheat in their day. He says to them, in effect, have you considered you might actually be a weed? And it goes about as well as you would think it does. This is part of the reason that Jesus got himself killed. All this does is it points to the reality that we are not great judges. So that's the parable, essentially. I think that's really what's essential to understand it. And, 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 and I'm going to, you know, let you guys go as deep as you want into different parts of it. But I do have one thing I want to say first to sort of kind of just end this section of the sermon. Um, I think this parable has a clear takeaway for us, a very practical uh, thing for us to meditate on and seek out as a response to it. All right? And that is patience. Okay, patience is, I think, the, the main thing we're supposed to draw out of this. Now, if you read throughout Scripture, patience is incredibly important. In, in Galatians 5, Paul talks about the fruit that grows from the presence of the Spirit in someone's life, right? Someone who's part of the kingdom. He talks about patience being one of those fruit, 
that's supposed to grow as a result of the spirit of the kingdom being in our, in our midst. That's because patience, I think, is actually fundamental to God's kingdom, right? One of the main ideas of discipleship we talked about last week is we become like Jesus, right? We, we follow after Jesus, we become like him. And Jesus, we believe, is God. And God is patient. So if we're going to be a disciple of Jesus and follow after him, we are going to seek out patience because that's who God is, right? He's not in a hurry. Consider passages like Psalm 90, verse 4. For you, God, a thousand years are a passing day, as brief as a few night hours. And so God wants us to have patience. And I think the reason is this. The reason is because when we are patient, when we are slow ourselves down to walk at God's pace, it tunes us into the way that the world, the way that God created the world, and even more importantly, the way God's kingdom works. We're going to see this as we walk through other parables, but the kingdom grows in secret, in hidden, in hidden places. And so patience is like a pair of VR goggles that we put on that helps us to see its presence in, in our midst. Patience slows us down so that we can sense its presence, we can notice its growth, and we can have proper expectations for it. If we want to find God, we have to slow down. And patience is the virtue, it's the character trait that allows us to do that. And that's why it's so essential, because God moves in ways that are only perceptible to us if we are patient. But here's the thing with all of this, right? And I can imagine maybe you're sitting here um, asking yourself a very honest and vulnerable question. So we've probably all felt like that farmer that we talked about at the very beginning. And even hearing this parable, thinking about the fact that God is delaying, we sometimes might ask ourselves the question in a moment of honesty, does God even really care? Like, what, why is God waiting? Why would God not, not do this now? Why does he not move? I think this is one of the hardest questions that those who follow Jesus and serve God have to face. And we have to acknowledge to ourselves that there aren't always easy answers to those questions as we seek them out. Henry Nouwen, he's a, he's a Dutch Catholic priest, he says that painful questions must be raised, faced, and then lived. This means that we must constantly avoid the temptation of offering or accepting simple answers to be easy defenders of God, the church, the tradition, or whatever we feel called to defend. Experience suggests that such glib apologetics, and that word apologetics just means kind of defense of God and faith, what they do is they animate hostility and anger, and finally, a growing alienation from whom or what we are trying to defend. Be careful when life's questions swirl around you in times of pain. In reality, the answer to the question is, why does God delay? Why does he not move at the pace that we would like him to? Simply is, as frustrating as it might be, because he is. That's the only real answer we get. And what that requires out of us is trust and a belief in a world that is more complex than we might imagine and ultimately his goodness. Okay? And there's a reason we talk so much about faith in the church. It is so central to what it means to follow after and love Jesus. Okay, but the thing about this is, the thing about faith is that it gives us clarity on everything else. It helps us to understand what else God has done in the world. Okay? And here's what I mean by that. When we trust God, we start to realize that he actually has responded to evil, and it's right under our noses if we're willing to accept it. And while the, the story in the parable ends where it does, Jesus' story doesn't. And I think we need to read the parable in light of how Jesus' story ends as well. And I have a quote from Tim Keller to help me illustrate this point. 
if we ask the question, why does God allow evil and suffering to continue, and we look at the cross of Jesus, we, do, we still do not know what the answer is. However, we know what the answer isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he is indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. The point he's trying to make is that God may not give us answers, but that doesn't mean he's silent. Does that make sense? God doesn't give us maybe the answers to our specific questions, but that doesn't mean he's not saying anything. He has spoken to us very clearly. Those are not the same things. He's spoken to us clearly about the evil we face, and his answer is this. You are not alone. I'm present in all of the evil that you face, all the misery, all the pain, all the suffering that you experience. I'm there with you. I will do something about this when the time is right, and you have to trust me about that. Remember, the world is far more complex than you can imagine. But in the meantime, I'm with you. I love you enough to be part of the pain of the world, to go through what you've gone through, and probably much more. You might not understand that, and I don't expect you to, but will you trust me? Will you trust in my love? And when we do, the thing about the kingdom is it grows because that's the power of the kingdom anyway. It's not to conquer the world. It's to create trust in God and love for him that spreads out throughout the rest of the field. And I think ultimately that is what God is looking for from us in the midst of our questions. So with that, let's transition into uh, responding to some questions. I'm not going to answer your questions. I'm going to respond to them, okay? There's a difference. I might not give a real answer to your question. I am not the answer guy. I'm not Google or ChatGPT, but I will give my best to give you some sort of response to questions you have. So do we have some, Julie, that have come in? Yeah. Um, okay, so you talked about in your example of the guy waiting, right? Mm -hmm. How waiting then can lead to increased doubt. So the question is like, how do you deal with the increased doubts that kind of build up when you're waiting for God to move or yeah, something like that? Yeah, sure. Um, I think that, you know, when we are in the midst of waiting or feeling doubts, I think often what we're looking for is we're looking for um, answers to our questions, or maybe to, you know, questions that the society we live in want. And we expect God to give us those answers. And our doubt increases because we're not getting the answers we expect from God. And that can increase our anxiety and doubt. I think one of the things that we have to learn as we follow after Jesus is instead of trying to project onto him, um, you know, that he has to answer our questions and see the world from our view, we have to figure out what it looks like to change our mindset so that we see the world from his. Okay, and I think that's what this parable is supposed to be doing. It's supposed to be kind of revealing to us the way that God sees the world, and we're supposed to start to see the world in a similar way to that. Now, I guess I could say more ab about, you know, that view, I guess, um, of the way that the world is. And, and how about this? I'm going to go, how about I go to Job? I'll, I'll, use the, I'll use that example. I do think that's a great example of this. Now, the story of Job, if you're not familiar with it in the Bible, it, what it is, is it's so famous because it really gets at the, 
uh, the, the concept of suffering, what it looks like to live in the midst of it and ask these types of questions more deeply. And the really cool thing about it is it's a very ancient book. It's, it's far older than we are today. And it's a reminder that people, we're not the first people to ask these questions or to experience doubt about God. I think it can be really like freeing and liberating to realize the types of questions we think we have like, are not new at all. Like Christianity, faith in Jesus, faith in God has uh, lasted centuries of people asking the same kinds of questions that we have today. And it still is compelling enough to be the force in the world that it is. So I think that's something that can sort of help us as we, you know, read the book of Job. But it's a famous story. We've spent a little time on it as a church. If you're not familiar with the story of Job, it's a story about a wise man. He's very righteous. And you know, if the kingdom of God had been present in his time, we would have said, this guy's wheat, for sure. He's a very weedy guy, right? But he experiences incredible suffering at the instigation of an enemy named Satan, who comes to God privately. They're talking about Job's righteousness, and Satan basically wagers God. I bet you he wouldn't be so righteous if you allowed him to experience some suffering. Now, there's a lot more going on in, in the story than, than just that, but that's basically it. God allows Satan to test Job, afflict him with some suffering. And, and Job suffers very deeply with it, and he wrestles very deeply with these questions of how could this be happening to me, right? There's a lot of cognitive distance going on between him and some friends of his. And as readers of the book, as we read through it, we, with the aid of the narrator, we know what's going on. We, we know the story is not, uh, that there, it's, it's far more complex than Job realizes, we know there are reasons for Job's horrific suffering, this enemy, and God's apparent lack of work and not stopping it. But one of, I think, the most profound parts of the, the book of Job is that Job never finds out any of this stuff. Think, think about that, okay? Um, I think we expect that Job should get an answer for why he's going through the stuff he's going through. We think that he deserves that. Right? We think God should show up and offer him some apology or explanation of what's been going on to him. And God does, you know, Job talks to some friends of his throughout the book, and he kind of talks to himself, and God finally shows up at the end. And we would, I think we, at least in our, maybe in our modern world, we would expect that God owes Job an apology and an explanation for everything that's going on. But he doesn't get it. Job never has his questions of why this stuff is happening to him answered. It's never revealed to him. And I think that that really, uh, what it is, is it's a response to us. That God actually invites Job, if you see what his response is, to see the world from his perspective, to understand its complexities, and to understand is far bigger than Job could ever comprehend, and to invite Job to trust him even if he doesn't have the answers, to have a sort of faith and trust that is not founded on uh, having the answers to everything, but something that's a lot deeper than that, that's a lot less flimsy, I think, than a faith that is just founded on thinking you have the answers to everything, right? God is inviting Job to live in a complex world, and I think that's what this parable is doing to us as well, but we can't get to that point of trusting God unless we're willing to sort of adopt his view of the world and see it from his angle and to accept its complexity and his goodness and that we can trust him in it and that it's okay. Things don't fall apart if we don't have the answers to everything. Because we, like I said, God has spoken to us. He wants us to see the world through the lens of the cross and to start there versus starting in our questions. So, okay, hopefully that's a helpful response. Um, Let's see if we have any more.
Just got one more. Um, how do you talk to someone who has this question about why God would let bad things happen in the world? Mm -hmm. um, because they, the idea that there's no answer is not very satisfying. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, and I think there is a couple of um, things I would think to that. First of all, um, if you have a friend who's wrestling deeply with suffering or something that they're going through, the best thing you can do, especially initially, is to respond with the answer that God gives us, right? Think again, think about what God's response to us is. It's not a rational explanation for, you know, why X and Y bad things happened. It's to come and be with us and to suffer with us on the cross. And so I think the best thing for you to do with a friend that is going through something similar is to start with giving, letting your answer to their problems, first of all, be the answer of Jesus, which is to come and to suffer with them, to be with them truly in the midst of it. Again, going back to, the, uh, to Job, um, it's often said his friends show up, right? The first three chapters of Job is kind of the beginning of the story. In chapter four, his, his buddies show up and they sit with them silently for a few days and mourn. And then they start talking and that's where things really go south, okay? And a lot of people like to point out that like Job's friends were good friends when they weren't talking. And once they started to talk and to try to give their own answers to everything, they just make things worse, okay? I think for us, um, th th there's a lot of wisdom to be learned in what it looks like for us to be like Jesus, to follow Jesus, and to first and foremost let our answer to people be um, the answer of Jesus, to be with them in their suffering, to be present with them, um, to love them, to show them you care, and hopefully to show them that God cares. Um, because again, I think that's where we need to go. I think that can hopefully help to start to draw them into uh, sort of, again, seeing, trying to see the world from God's view instead of ours. I think that can really, really help us. Um, I think the, <laughs> it's going to take a lot of time. Um, if you've ever gone through a, a period of intense suffering or, or, uh, or depression, you know that it doesn't work. It's not a, there's, not, there's no light switch, right? There's no uh, perfect answer that can be given to people. And honestly, when you're going through something like that, man, I mean, even if you are given an answer, a lot of times that's not helpful. Have you, I don't know, do you guys, have you guys ever experienced that where like you're going through something really hard and like maybe you get a good answer to it and you're like, Ugh, yeah, but it still sucks. I don't like the answer, right? And I think that, that it's good to remember that when people are going through things. They need time to process through what they're going through and to sort of maybe come to the place that would help them to sort of accept what's going on, to be okay without having a firm answer, and to, you know, hopefully trust and love God throughout the midst of it anyway. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Is that it? We're good? All right, well, I um, appreciate the, the questions. I know this is a heavy thing. Um, you know, people are going through hard stuff all the time. And I know we don't talk about it a lot of times when we, you know, maybe gather together. You, you know, you come to church and you put on your happy face or you go to work and you put on your happy face. It's not, not often that people know you're going through, but it, it's very common for people to be experiencing and living um, sort of in the midst of a world that is, it is full of evil and pain and suffering. And um, yeah, so it, it's a tough one, but I appreciate you guys letting us walk through it. So I'm going to pray for us. And then we are going to enter into a time of worship and communion. Um, communion is a great time for us as a church to remember that Jesus' answer to our suffering is to uh, 
go through it with us and to use that opportunity to actually defeat evil. Okay? There's a, there's a, a so often in, in Scripture, we see the cross referred to as a defeat of sin and evil. And when we take communion, we're reminding ourselves of that. We're reminding ourselves of the first blow that God made against it that will one day culminate in him doing something for good about evil and pain and suffering in the world. And so when we take communion, we are reminding ourselves of that. And we are uh, thanking Jesus for his presence. I think, you know, it's okay to think about the presence of Jesus being with you when you take communion. The presence of the crucified, uh, uh, loving Savior who embraced the misery and suffering and pain of the world um, out of love for us. So let his presence be with you as you take communion. Do that as you sit through uh, worship and meditate. Um, and also, um, uh, uh, if you would like prayer for anything, we'll have someone in the back who would love to pray for you in the midst of maybe you're going through some sort of uh, suffering or pain right now. Okay? Awesome. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that um, while we live in a complicated world where we all experience all kinds of pain and suffering uh, on a regular basis, Lord, you are, not, you are not sitting up in heaven just enjoying the show or thinking about how hard that might be for us or telling us we just need to figure out a way to get to a place where we're good again. Lord, you come to us. You engage with us in the misery and the hardship of a world that is full of weeds and, and, and an, with an enemy who is uh, g- going around and trying to do what he can to smear your creation. God, you did not sit idly by while we experienced it, but you came and you took it upon yourself. You took the full consequences of it on yourself so that we might have hope and life and, and one day uh, believe that you will do something about it all. Lord, I pray that um, you would give us that hope and that trust and that peace and that patience as we wait here, Lord, in the midst of this in-between time that we find ourselves in. We pray all this in the name of Jesus.